Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Witness Docs from Stitcher. What does desperation look like? For us, it was a 12-foot by 40-foot long billboard that we rented on a highway just outside of Marion, Arkansas. By the spring of 2019, we were frustrated. Just like everyone else who'd looked into Isidore's case over the years, his family, civil rights lawyers, the NAACP, we'd hit a wall. And it was time to shake things up. So we put up a billboard. On a deep black background, we wrote a simple question in huge white letters. Who lynched Isidore Banks? And below the question, we added a phone number, a tip line. Thank you for calling the Isidore Banks tip line. Banks was a farmer and a father, a businessman, and a veteran of World War I. At one point, he owned nearly a thousand acres in Crittenden County. And then... If you have any information about what happened to him, please leave us a message here. We waited. I'm Taylor Hom. And I'm Neil Shea. This is Unfinished, Deep South. Episode 8. Who lynched Eastore Banks? I think that's a great idea. It's just a good avenue because you want people to talk. This is Rachel Walton. She's a professor of criminal justice at Utah State University. The billboard was her idea. And that's what you want. You want that conversation to to be started. You know, that people are talking about it. You may get some anonymous calls. Walton wrote a textbook on cold case investigation. She's also a former sheriff's deputy who once cracked a case in California that was even older than Isidore's. The people that don't know anything about it are going to start, start asking questions of those older people who do know something about it, even if through through hearsay or third hand. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And then somebody ultimately may drop, it, drop a dime to you. Drop a dime. That's cop talk for calling in a tip from a payphone. I noticed your billboard, um, the one that says, who lynched Isidore Banks. Pretty soon after the billboard went up, the calls started rolling in. There were a lot of hang-ups and a few new tips. Yes, uh, my name is Kirk. And please give me a call at area code 870. 
A local TV station even did a story about the billboard and Isidore on the nightly news. This billboard is making drivers do a double take as they travel along Interstate 55. But mostly the tips were a few old theories and rumors we'd heard before. It's obvious the sheriff did it. But I think I have a a good source to get inside the uh, white community. Hey, would you dial and call this number back? I don't want to leave my name. Our billboard was inspired by a flag the NAACP put outside their Manhattan offices during the 1920s and 30s. In white letters against a black background, it read, A man was lynched yesterday. And on mornings following the news of a lynching, the NAACP flew the flag high over Fifth Avenue. That is, until their landlord threatened to evict them. Nearly 400 African Americans were lynched during this time. The NAACP had been fighting an anti-lynching campaign for years, lobbying politicians, pushing legislation, and trying to move popular opinion from complacency to outrage. So the flag, it was meant to be provocative. It was meant to urge white America to see the violent reality of lynching. And we hope that our billboard might do something similar. A few callers seemed grateful for the reminder. They didn't know Isidore's story and left messages saying they were glad to learn about him and sorry to hear of his murder. The billboard also made some people angry, really angry. One local TV news reporter, an African-American woman, told us that when she pulled over to film a segment about the billboard, a white man marched over to her and told her to get off his property. He said, you need to leave this alone. The billboard didn't produce any spectacular new leads. It was mostly met with silence. A silence that seemed to echo the indifference that's allowed racism and violence to flourish in America for centuries. But it turned out that some of Professor Walton's other advice, less flashy, more practical, would prove a lot more helpful. She told us to try one of the most basic steps from Cold Case 101. Go back over the work you did at the very beginning, she said, because sometimes you find things that you missed or details that didn't make sense back then, suddenly take on a new dimension. So we did. And Professor Walton, she was right. Earlier in our investigation, months before we talked to Professor Walton, we discovered that the Crittenden County chapter of the NAACP had looked into Isidore's death in the months after his lynching. And someone had written a secret report about their investigation. Just the idea of this report thrilled us. Local people, Isidore's neighbors, secretly working to figure out who lynched him. It was the closest thing there had ever been to an actual investigation. And maybe it held some of the answers we were looking for. But we'd never been able to find the report itself. Just references to it. And letters written between NAACP leaders. When we started searching for the report, one of the first places we turned was the local office of the NAACP. Hello. I'm looking for the Crittenden County NAACP. Okay. Is this, is this, are you, I'm Taylor, I'm a journalist. Today, the local headquarters is in downtown West Memphis, in a bookshop. This is Neil. Hi. Yeah, you're a journalist? I'm also a journalist, yeah. Good for y'all. Um, <laughs> what do we do this time? No. no, you guys, sorry. This is Shabaka Afrika. He's president of the local NAACP branch, 
and he was wary of us the moment we walked in. He later explained that most visitors to his bookshop were African-American. He thought we might be lost tourists, or that I might be a cop. We're actually looking for your help. Um, we're investigating a 1954 lynching that happened in Crittenden County, Arkansas. Isidore Banks. Isidore Banks. June 8th. Yeah. June 8th, 1954. Shabaka not only knew who Isidore Banks was, he also knew the day his body was officially found by the police. I've heard, I've talked to a lot of people about Isidore Banks. Most of those guys are dead now themselves. Shabaka was born and raised in Arkansas. He'd lived most of his adult life in Crittenden County. But it really scared the hell out of black folk in this area. And today, it set the tone for white terrorism against blacks who, who, uh, who were bold enough to try to be independent. The whites in this area are not going to have it. And many of the players, if they're not allowed, their children who still wield the power in Crittenden County are still here. Isidore's lynching sent the message, if we can get to him, we can get to you. And that same message, the same fear, it had survived all these decades, passed down with each retelling of Isidore's story. We asked Shabaka if any documents from Isidore's time had survived, and he showed us something kind of amazing. That's the charter, 1948. The original NAACP charter, the one given to the Crittenden County chapter back in 1948 during the dangerous days of Jim Crow, when Isidore helped bring the NAACP to the area. And then in 1948, Isidore's name shows up on early NAACP documents. I didn't know that. We didn't, we, this, we just discovered this. You're life. telling me something. I didn't know that Isidore Banks was involved in NAACP at all. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to have been political in any way, at least on paper, until that moment in 19. Well, let's keep in mind, by this time, this man is over 50 years old. We're not talking about a young guy, because normally when you think about these incidents, it's usually young people, you know, they're like the Black Panthers, you know, in 19, 20 years old, fighting against the pig, the man. And Isidore Banks is 59 years old, almost 60 years old at the point that he was killed. Usually those men at that age are not a threat. Usually when people get that age, they've melded into the system and they go along to get along. And... Uh, but apparently he was a threat, and I don't know specifically why he was killed. And when you understand who he was, then his life is a threat. The very fact that you exist, a, uh, for years, a black man that existed here that could speak well, that was independent, that in of itself makes him a threat. While we talked, a customer walked into the shop, a tall, slender man in a baseball cap. These young folk here uh, from up in New York, and they're here doing a story about Isdell Banks. Shabaka introduced him as Reverend Edward Hampton. He's 82 years old and was 19 when Isidore was killed. Yeah, uh, he's 15, 16 years older than I am. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know a lot about the details. That time, we at Black Folk didn't talk to, you know, maybe among ourselves, but nobody else, because... It, it, it was dangerous, you know. It, it was really dangerous back people then. People scared? Huh? Were people afraid? Yeah, they were. People were afraid. Did you think, did the people think that if uh, you talked about it, it might happen to them? You see, if he had stayed, if he had been living today, he, he may have drawn a lot of us out of what we were afraid of. There you go. Yeah, they, they not did not only want to kill him. They wanted to put fear in me about what they'd done to him. If they'd done to Isidore, hey, they'll do that to me. 
Reverend Hampton said that Isidore, with his confidence, fearlessness, and wealth, was a powerful example for other African Americans. He could inspire the people around him to resist white dominance, which made him dangerous in the eyes of white people. You know, you, you didn't back him down, you know, off of stuff because he just believed in what he believed in and did what he did. And they, they were afraid of him, in a, in a, in a sense. And that's when they did him like they did, trying to put scare into us as other that's black people. Problem. Yeah, you know, see, people, see, they did a lot of stuff then to put scare in the rest of them and say stuff that I happened. I heard that kind of stuff, too. It didn't go away in 1954. Uh, it's still around. Yeah, it's still around. It's still around. In, in, still in, After Reverend Hampton left, Shabaka told us he was surprised the Reverend even talked to us because older people are often still afraid to talk about what happened to Isidore. Uh, as um, I got involved in political stuff here in Crittenden County, I began hearing these Isidore Banks, they'll kill you, you better be careful. You know, I spoke at a church one night, I never will forget, and I talked about the whites that were there. I said, these whites are here because they want you to support them for office. I said, but you need to find people among you to occupy these offices. And, and I remember when it was over, one lady said to me, say, say, aren't you scared to say that? And I said, no, was I supposed to be? She said, it pisses me off when I think about that. You know, and I'm not interested in dying. You know, I know why I wants to get killed, but I'd be damn. God, that pisses me off. What pisses you off? The fact that, that, that these white boys have been able to get away with that and they're still doing it. They're still doing it in, in ways, the residuals of that are still in effect. And the more I got involved in community affairs, the more Isidore Banks' name kept resonating with me because it was a poster child for what will happen to black people if they get out of line. And of course, as I began to act and do, black folk would tell me, you better stop, the white folk gonna kill you. Man, that white man gonna kill you. They gonna blow up your store. I hear that now. You better be careful. Watch your back. They'll kill you. Fear, the only thing that fear does, fear enhances your enemy. And at some point, your fear, you become your own enemy. Sitting with Shabaka in the NAACP's office, holding the original charter, something Isidore probably touched, we felt like we were so close, like that secret NAACP report about Isidore's lynching was almost within reach. But Shabaka had never heard of it, and he didn't have any records from that time. One of our producers scoured obscure archives across the country looking for the report, but nothing turned up. And after a while, we put the search aside. Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. 
So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. A few months later, after Professor Walton encouraged us to go back over our work, retrace our steps, we decided to make one last effort to find the NAACP report. So we hired a historian named Jay Driscoll, who specializes in combing through old records. And pretty soon... Holy shit, look at this. Jay just texted Jay Driscoll. We were in the car on our way back to Memphis from the courthouse. He found the Vernon McDaniel investigation, man. Uh... This is what we've been waiting for. He sent a picture of it. What do you see? What does it say? The Isidore Banks case of desegregation in Crittenden County, Arkansas, by Vernon McDaniel. Oh man, this is gold. 1954. I can't freaking believe it. This is amazing. This is, nobody's ever found this before. I wonder what it says. Who knows, this is written in December. It's like months afterwards. Who knows what other information there could be and who knows how much of that's been lost since. These guys were writing much closer to the actual murder than anybody else. Maybe there will be names of suspects or people who were rumored to have done it. The report was tucked halfway through a massive legal file in a lonely corner of the Library of Congress. It's eight pages long and written by an African-American field agent with the NAACP's national headquarters in New York. Special report. The Isidore Banks case and desegregation in Crittenden County, Arkansas by Vernon McDaniel. Vernon McDaniel had been sent to Crittenden County in November of 1954. This was a few months after the Supreme Court's Brown versus Board of Education decision which overturned segregation. His mission was to help local people organize and fight for integration. But when Vernon got to Crittenden County, he realized African-Americans weren't even talking about integration because they were still reeling from the lynching of Isidore Banks. His writing offers such an intimate sense of the moment that we had an actor read an excerpt. Feelings over the incident among Negro residents may be described as fear of personal safety, which is progressing toward mild hysteria. We need not expect that Negroes will engage in an all-out fight against segregated schools while they are deeply concerned or frightened over the possibility of meeting violent death at the hands of unknown killers. This state of fear has been given impetus by recent rumors that 13 more Negroes are marked for the bank's treatment. The Banks treatment, the name that had been given to the brutal way Isidore was lynched. Vernon discovered it was being used as a threat against any African American who might challenge white supremacy. The incident can be used most effectively as a threat to those Negroes who become too aggressive in the promotion of desegregation. Thus, it seems that as long as the killers go free, Negroes in Crittenden County will be constantly reminded, remember Isidore Banks. Remember Isidore Banks. That really kind of jumped out of the page for me. That's our senior producer, Stephanie Kariuki. After we finally found the report, we called her to talk about it. I was thinking about how I feel sometimes, like when I'm watching the news 
and you just see like another act of police violence and you see something else that's happening against the black community and how that just makes me feel scared, you know, and how it makes you feel scared to go outside. And I'm just picturing that's exactly how these people must have felt. Yeah. And it's working. Vernon wrote that in the months after Isidore's murder, the threat of the bank's treatment had already been used on a group of African-American school principals who had signed a petition against integration, saying they didn't want it. Vernon realized that Isidore's lynching could have a domino effect, stopping integration in Crittenden, then the Delta, then the rest of the state. So Vernon sent this report to NAACP leaders, men like Thurgood Marshall. He urged them to take action, to open an investigation into Isidore's death, or at least to make some show of solidarity with African Americans in Crittenden County. And he warned them what might happen if they didn't. It's the plea of someone who's desperate because he knows if no one does anything, like nothing will change in the community. It makes it even more, more alarming because it's right before the civil rights movement is about to start. So they need people to kind of sign on to take a risk to, you know, end Jim Crow and end segregation. And it's it, this report made it very clear that Isidore's lynching was used to kind of deter any kind of momentum that the civil rights movement might gain in this county, which was predominantly an African-American county. This is someone who deeply understands the complexities of trying to fight for civil rights, but just also maintaining your livelihood and maintaining who you are as a Black person, trying to survive in your community. It doesn't seem like NAACP headquarters ever followed up on Vernon McDaniel's report. Scholars told us his request for help and Isidore's case itself probably got sidelined as the group focused on the larger battle for desegregation. But for us, his work provided incredible evidence from inside the African-American community. Shortly after Banks was killed, a small group of Negroes in Crittenden County began work to apprehend the killers and bring them to justice. These feelings of personal insecurity and helplessness cannot be fully understood unless one meets face-to-face the men who are working courageously, though secretly, to bring the culprits to justice. These men had hired a lawyer to present the case to the Department of Justice, they gathered a list of names of potential suspects, and they put together a list of motives. Most of this work didn't get anywhere. The Justice Department never took up Isidore's case. The list of suspects is long lost. But in his report, Vernon did summarize the three theories put forward for why Isidore might have been killed. Possible reasons for the brutal slaying of Banks have sifted down to about three. One theory suggests that he was murdered as a result of arguments over debts. But because of customary secrecy in financial affairs, little is known about the extent and complications of Banks' business transactions. The NAACP report didn't go deep into Isidore's financial history we did. Debt seemed to be a regular part of his business, as it is for many farmers. But the idea that he'd been killed over that debt, it just didn't track the timing and brutal nature of Isidore's death. A second theory suggests that Banks had an affair with a white woman who sold merchandise to Negro families by house-to-house canvassing. 
While it is commonly known that Banks was somewhat of a free lover, there was no rumor of an affair with the white woman. Vernon called Isidore a free lover. What he means is that Isidore was known to have affairs. This was pretty common at the time for powerful men of all races. During our reporting, we'd learned that Isidore had children with three women other than his wife. But we never found anything to suggest Isidore's adultery crossed the color line. Plus, the white woman rumor? That was an old storyline. One that had been used for generations to whip up white anger and justify lynchings. Interracial relationships were illegal across the South during Jim Crow. And while white men were rarely, if ever, prosecuted for breaking these laws, just the whisper of an African-American man with a white woman could trigger a lynch mob. Isidore would have been well aware of all of this. So we focused on the third motive Vernon described for Isidore's murder. Because this one, it felt like it could be something. Covetous white neighbors have been suggested also as a reason for the death of Banks. Several Italian farmers cultivate land adjacent to some acreage which Banks rented. According to rumors, the Italians were interested in renting this land, but were unable to do so because the white lady who owned the land was satisfied with Banks as a renter and had promised him the land as long as he desired to use it. There has been rumor that, on more than one occasion, Banks had words with the Italian farmers as he passed through their fields en route to his rented farmland. We wondered if those verbal arguments might have escalated and eventually turned into violence. In Isidore's day, a lot of Italian farmers lived and farmed in Crittenden County. Isidore worked with some of them. And several of Isidore's family members, they mentioned Italians as potential suspects. But the details, names, locations, and motive were always fuzzy. We tried to reach out to the Italian community. Almost no one would talk to us about Isidore's lynching or anything else. But the scenario laid out in the report, it started to make sense. Well, this, this guy, his name was Vernon McDaniel. And, um, who was he? He was the NAACP's guy who came down. And, um, and Surprised they didn't kill him. We took Vernon's report back to Shabaka, Africa, of the NAACP's local chapter in Crittenden County. And we told him about the third theory for Isidore's murder. That had to do with Italians and a feud that he may have been having with them about land. Why would Italians have killed him? Did he commit a crime again? For land. For, for either land or a woman. Most people think Isidore was either killed over land or a woman. This third theory brought those two camps together. Shabaka didn't know anything about the woman or the land or the feud. But he did know about the Italians and their peculiar history in Crittenden. Well, Italians came into this area early. And my understanding is that they were held in a little bit lesser esteem than, than whites. I don't think they, they didn't consider Italians white until later on. Italian immigrants first arrived in Arkansas in the late 1800s. They'd left Italy to escape poverty and hoped that in America they'd be able to work their own land. Instead, many ended up working as sharecroppers on plantations in the southern part of the state. They often were treated badly, paid poorly, but eventually, several families saved enough to escape southern Arkansas. And in the early 1900s, they settled in Crittenden County, around the same time Isidore's family arrived. For the Italians, Crittenden represented a land of opportunity, the same way it had for African Americans who'd arrived before them. The Italians started farming. They opened a few shops, built the area's first Catholic church. And because of the trials they'd endured, this new Italian community was tightly knit 
and mostly kept to itself. For the first half of the 20th century, they were also shut out of the county's politics. And uh, I wonder how that made them feel, because I've talked to some, and they said, well, you know, we were treated the same way, which isn't true. I've talked to people Irish, well, you know, we were treated that way. Well, that's not true. You know, nobody was treated like blacks, because most Italians, unless they're strong Sicilians, you wouldn't know uh, an Italian from somebody from France. Shabaka was talking about something we'd heard before from white people in Crittenden County, that Italians had been treated worse than African Americans. But Shabaka pointed out, no matter how hard life was for Italians, African Americans were the ones relegated to the bottom of an imposed racial ladder. And this gave other groups power. Once the social structure, once, once it was clear that the social structure would not view blacks as humans and that Whatever you did to blacks, nothing would happen to you. So that became an incentive for everybody to, to, to pick on them, beat them up, murder them, whatever they did. didn't matter. You know, that's what human beings do. They designate certain groups as inferior in order to exploit them. You know, that's what, you know, again, you know, the whole idea of, uh, of the social construct, uh, of, of a social theory of white supremacy is that uh, it provides whites, particularly wealthy whites, the ability to exploit other people, other races' resources, and to prohibit them from uh, participating in the competition for wealth and power in the world. I mean, it's a, it's just a game. I mean, that's exactly what happened here in Crittenden County. Uh, it's like a little. Kingdom. It's still happening here in Crittenden County. It'll come back around. It'll stop if the United States isn't careful. If it doesn't figure out a way to practice diversity, America is going to become a third-rate nation within a hundred years. When Italian immigrants first arrived in the United States, they occupied a strange middle ground in the American racial consciousness. They weren't black, but they weren't quite white. Within a generation, Italians in Crittenden County were gaining access to power on school boards, banks, and in other offices. They'd established businesses and bought lots of land in the county. But during Isidore's time, that hadn't happened yet. You might expect that Italians and African-Americans would have become natural allies, bound by a common struggle against racism and bigotry. Instead, they found themselves pitted against each other in a battle for resources and land. And in Marion, that meant Italians were going up against Isidore Banks. Next time on Unfinished Deep South. He was throwing things, he was cursing, he was storming mad, and he kept saying, damn it, I told them not to kill him. And she's like, who is he talking about? Who is he talking about? And he kept saying, I told them not to kill him. Unfinished Deep South is a production of Witness Docs from Stitcher and Market Road Films. Written and produced by us, Taylor Hom and Neil Shea. Editing by Peter Clowney, Gianna Palmer, and Tracy Samuelson. The show is produced by Laura Kalaluri and Stephanie Kariuki. 
Our executive producers are Lynn Nottage, Tony Gerber, Peter Clowney, and Chris Bannon. Our mixing engineer is Casey Holford. Special thanks to our fact checker, Michelle Harris. And to Daniel Breaker for lending his voice to Vernon McDaniel's letter. Deep South features blues, folk, and gospel music performed by Hubby Jenkins. Original theme music and score by Casey Holford, with musicians Ryan Thornton and Dan Costello. Special thanks to the extended family of Eastor Banks, who gave generously of their time, their patience, and their memories. Special thanks to Daniel Breaker for lending his voice to Vernon McDaniel's words. Thanks also to Professor Margaret Burnham and the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project at Northeastern University, to Willie Gammon, and to the 78 Project. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. John Henry was a steam-driving man, but he went down, he went down. John Henry was a steam-driving man, but he went down. He went down That's why I'm gone This is a big year The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary 50 years of excitement Of growing jackpots and crossed fingers 50 years of funding for schools Of changed lives and brightened days 50 years of fun And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.